Hello and welcome to the final chapter of the Winter Will Come Again podcast. I'm Sarah Diedro-Jordan and I'll be your host for this podcast series where we're going to be exploring the story behind the energy crisis Europe faced the past winter, its connection with plastic production and why, to ease Europe's energy needs, plastic has to go. From the data to real experiences behind the data, we have taken you through a little bit of a journey of what plastic production really is. In particular, the link to fossil fuels and Europe's energy crisis. As the people and the planet continue to bear the brunt of the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry, we do not want to leave this podcast without acknowledging and exploring the possibilities we have to actually reduce human dependence on fossil fuels and counter the growing plastics production industry. In Europe, to regain international leadership in fighting the climate and plastic production crisis, as well as protecting citizens from wildly escalating prices and resulting conflicts, the EU needs to confront and drastically reduce virgin plastic production, starting with halting the production of unnecessary single-use plastics and packaging. That being said, a just transition must be prioritized. This is where Ezra Tat enters the podcast stage. Ezra is based in Brussels, Belgium, and is the executive director of Zero Waste Europe. In this episode, she'll share some of the opportunities Europe has to combat its production and consumption of plastic. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today for today's episode. Um, I think to just get us started and give our listeners a bit of background, it'd be great if you can just share who you are, where you're based, uh, what's your background, and tell us a little bit more about your work at Zero Waste Europe. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm the executive director at Zero Waste Europe. Um, we're a European-wide um, organization and a network. The big part of our work is um, influencing EU policy. And Zero Waste Europe is part of a global movement called Gaia. Um, and we work with other colleagues from other regions um, in Latin America, US, Canada, Africa, and um, Asia Pacific. I think just maybe before diving in the, the conversation specifically, I'd love to hear more on, you know, related to plastics specifically. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more in depth about the work of Zero Waste Europe? Yes. So we, one of the key aspects of the, the work of Zero Waste Europe is um, very much uh, linked to our members, uh, mostly grassroots groups and civil society groups in, in Europe. Um, and one of the foundational work we've been doing um, is to work with municipalities. So the work on, on plastic started um, when at the local level in all the waste streams that municipalities had to manage, we saw plastic and plastic packaging actually increasing steadily over the last um, years. So plastic is a waste stream that is really key at the local level for municipalities that are implementing zero waste strategies. And this has been a bit like the, the starting point. Um, the recycling of most of these plastics um, were not possible, not only for like due to poor collection system, but also in terms of technologies. Either this, this plastic ended up being exported or uh, finding alternative, let's say, technologies to burn it to produce energy, for example. So there is a huge problem um, with plastic and, and I feel sometimes not fully understood uh, when you you look at it from a climate perspective, for example, we tend to think that plastic is problematic 
from a climate perspective, only at its production phase or primarily at its production phase, um, you know, the whole build out of different um, um, extraction facilities. And really, we do need to close the tap on the production of virgin plastic. But plastic is problematic during in its, its entire death cycle. So from the extraction to um, when it's been used to this end of life. Uh, so the work we've been doing is on this entire death cycle of plastics, a bit less on the ex- production side, um, but really on the, um, the management and what do we do with the end of life of this increasing amount of uh, plastic and primarily plastic packaging that we don't know how to recycle and that is creating problems for municipalities to just need to you know, collect um, and, and do something out of it. Thank you so much. The fossil fuel dependency of Europe is being uh, sort of nourished by the petrochemical industry and virgin plastic production. And much of this in turn, um, you know, is being funneled into single-use plastic packaging. So I'd be interested to know from your point of view, how can Europe achieve um, reduction in this type of plastic packaging? Uh, we could already say that um, the European Commission and Europe um, has taken strong steps already in the last years to address um, singular plastic and, and the, the plastic pollution. Um, we know today that in most of the uses of the plastic packaging, we could avoid uh, with better systems, different ways of uh, delivering the, the products to the consumers. So I think this looking at packaging, generally speaking, and, and actually addressing um, the need for, for packaging, what type of packaging can it be, is one of the approaches. So hence, the, we're in a really good context now with the packaging, packaging waste regulation to have this conversation. So from a policy framework, we are, despite the lack of ambition that we're sometimes feeling, really going to the right direction. Maybe going back to really how can we achieve reduction. I think from a policy side, we have... Um, a few levers for, for, for sure. What we miss is examples of how a different world could look like. Um, because what policy makers are, are looking at, better collection rates, uh, their targets in terms of um, different types of recycled content, etc. Those are essential, um, really essential. And I wouldn't like this to be my next part to be misunderstood, but it is still sometimes optimizing a broken system. Um, of course, it's very important to have the right operating systems and the right incentives. But the first question we should ask ourselves is, what is needed? Um, and I think this, this essential use dimension, this essential use question, would really help us to um, take the debate to a slightly different place, um, not divert it from the conversation of, you know, banning certain single-use uh, items and, or like rethinking some of the, the packaging, but actually really having a conversation on how much do we need, when do we need. And as I said earlier, when we say using plastic only when it makes sense, today there are many places where it doesn't make sense. So then spending time in addressing the collection rate of that specific packaging is a needed conversation in the current context, but it's not the future vision of it. Thank you so much for that. I think just bouncing back, because you did mention a few times uh, essential use and also the, the need in general that we need to look into. Um, how do you think we can tackle the, the demand for short-lived plastics and also 
you know, how can we as citizens, organizations, countries just reduce the waste that we create? I don't know if there's a demand for short-lived plastics. Um, when, you know, sadly, when, you, when you're when you a citizen and you buy, um, you know, water because you don't have access to a fountain or, or for different reasons, you could have the same uh, water being delivered in any type of packaging. Um, you just are offered only that option. I think for me, one of the ways to really tackle the demand is to make the demand obsolete by replacing it by systems that are very easy, very convenient, um, and affordable. Um, I we, we hear sometimes that our oh, consumers are lazy, um, so it's going to be hard to put a system that's going to ask more. I don't think consumers are lazy. I think we are just really busy. So if you have an option that is as easy, as convenient, um, that is not putting an extra burden on your you know, budget, um, then it will be quickly adopted. Um, if I make a parallel with a lot of other um, uses that we had in completely different areas of our lives, um, we really shift when the offer shifted. Um, you know, you used to have the single-use cameras that are interestingly coming back today. All of us said that we had digital cameras, and it was a radical shift, but it was you know, it changed. The way we consumed, the way we used, the, the way we took pictures changed, and then we had our phones. So for me, one way to take this uh, this conversation or this, um, you know, tackling a short-lived plastic to the next level is really by multiplying the alternatives and paying a huge attention of who can have access to those alternatives and how are those alternatives um, put on the market. Absolutely. And it's uh, super interesting that you mentioned inequalities as well and like who are, who would have access to alternatives and, and specific things as well. Because the next point I wanted to actually talk about is, is just transition. Uh, and it's a concept that has been you know used more and more in green EU bubbles, within green NGOs as well. There's entire papers and books written about it. Um, so it'd be great if you could just explain what is meant exactly when we talk about just transition. Yes, I think it's one of this 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 key um, expression, key words that we hear a lot. Um, we cannot just like replace one system with another system without taking into account how this will impact the people and especially the communities uh, who are producing, but also on the user side. So really, just transition is this idea of the concept, the thinking of transforming from this, uh, let's say very extractive economy to a different model um, in a more just equitable way, making sure that the necessary um, people who are involved and at least it has support among the population and the people who are directly concerned have a voice or a say in, in the process. Thank you. So last question to close our conversation would be around the role then of, of just transition. What role can, can it play or should it play in the transition to reducing uh, plastic production and shifting to reuse systems from your point of view? Yeah, I think it's a very, it's, it's a key question, especially if we consider who would be around the table, if we really were to consider just transition as part of one of the key elements to consider and, you know, shifting from, um, Plastic to yeah to reuse systems, for example. Um, one of the key elements for me would be, um, and that would be 
really the key role is um, making sure that we involve um, the, the the communities um, and the people who are going to use real systems. Um, quite recently, um, I, I had a huge aha moment um, when I was in um, in Vietnam as part of a, the the global meeting at Break from Plastic, where in Europe, for example, we tend to see reuse systems unintentionally, like certain type of reuse systems um, being a bit better than others because we think in terms of um, cost, uh, what would be the most adapted to logistics and, and a very technical perspective um, and closer to some of the uses we have here. Um, and when I was in, in Vietnam, one of our colleague there said, but here we have completely different systems and actually we need to work with retailers um, because they are going to be the ones who will really make the, the the system work because it's not high-tech systems here. It's still primarily relying on on refill, traditional refill systems or adapted versions of refill systems. Um, and I think if we were to, to, to take this thinking that we have in Europe just like export it somewhere else, First, we're really great in Europe at exporting our bad ideas um, in terms of technology. I can speak about it from the, the incineration side, but now even with reuse systems. So on the just transition part, really looking at this, it would really be um, making sure that we don't design systems for only a few, but actually we also tap into the knowledge, the wisdom, and different ways of doing uh, that will in different contexts. Um, so that would really be on the on the reuse systems. And, and I think generally speaking on, you know, addressing the question of, you know, the, how the, 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 the petrochemical industry is really like still fueling with all the virgin plastic um, that is then, you know, turning into all the single-use items that we no longer want to see, um, then there are just transition is is essential because earlier I mentioned like the producing side talking more on the, the plastic, but even from the extraction, people who today work um, in in the you know extractive industry, the workers, um, what do we do with them? You know, we tend to think about the petrochem industry as the petrochem industry, you know, like the petro elephant in the room, um, but this. There are also people working, and and I think this this whole conversation would be also easier if we really bear in mind that there are people today working in this yes very extractive in all ways of understanding the the, the word extractive um, industries, and and I think that would be probably a better way to uh, to start the conversation in some in some context. I think it's super valuable to bring back the human perspective and also, you know, talking about the global north versus global uh, south dynamics. So thank you for that. For the third and last pillar of this final episode, we are going to be discussing the Global Plastics Treaty with Carol Muffet. Carol is the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. What is the treaty's potential to transform reliance on fossil fuels for plastics? What could be its implications? What is it lacking? And what are environmental actors 
such as the Bread Free From Plastic movement, expecting. So Carol, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Winter is Coming. Uh, to start with, if you could maybe please tell us a little bit about, a little bit about who you are, where do you work at the moment, and uh, maybe also share with us the backstory behind why do you work on the topics that you're currently working on? Absolutely. Um, we had been looking for several years at at the role of oil and gas in driving the climate crisis. And you can't spend much time looking at how oil and gas companies operate without soon discovering that they are also the major, the major players in the plastic production space. And we began to recognize that there was at the time a big gap in how the world was addressing the plastic crisis. Because civil society movements were making extraordinary inroads in calling attention to to the impacts of plastics on the oceans, on wild on, on wildlife, starting to focus on the impact of disposable plastics in fast-moving consumer goods, which is critically important. But in CL's early research, one of the things that we recognized was that even as this is happening, the oil and gas companies who are the primary producers of plastics have massive incentives to build ever new plastic production facilities. And so if we don't address the plastic production part of the equation, we can't ever solve the plastic crisis. That was coupled with a growing recognition that, that as plastic pollution comes, becomes truly pervasive in our environment, it is having not only impacts on our climate, but extraordinary impacts on human health. Um, both for both for people who have plastics in their in their homes, in their food, in their water, and increasingly in their bodies, but also for those frontline and fence line communities where plastics are made and where the impacts are most severe. And so, the, those are the issues that brought a, brought CL into this work. Super insightful. Thank you so much for that. Uh, one of the main things that I would love uh, to discuss with you today, specifically, is the Global Plastics Treaty. So there's been a lot of excitement around this process for anybody connected to, to the plastic world and, and environment. Definitely, I've heard about that. But for the listeners who might not know so much about it, uh, could you please give us a little insight as to what is the treaty about, what's going on uh, concretely, and why the process of you know having this treaty uh, even began in the first place? A little bit more than a year ago, the United Nations Environment Assembly adopted a resolution creating a mandate for countries to begin negotiations on a global plastics treaty, a treaty to address plastic pollution across the entire life cycle of plastics. And that was an extraordinary milestone for several reasons. It was an extraordinary milestone because even a few years ago, it was unthinkable that, that we would get a mandate for that treaty. But much more fundamentally, um, what was really extraordinary was that in the space of those few years, we had moved the global community from this focus on thinking of plastics as a waste problem and a, a pollution in the oceans problem to recognizing that the impacts of plastics, the human health impacts, the human rights impacts, um, the pollution impacts occur at every stage of the plastics life cycle. And so what is extraordinary about the global plastics treaty about the mandate to negotiate it is we are for the first time addressing 
as an international community, the entire life cycle impacts of one of the world's most pervasive, ubiquitous products and one of the world's most pervasive pollutants. And that is that is coupled with the fact that plastics are also a growing part of the climate crisis. And that is one of the things that led, you know, led many negotiators when the resolution was created to recognize that these negotiations are the most significant environmental, the most significant climate negotiations since the Paris Agreement. And so that gives you a sense for the stakes. But the other remarkable thing about the mandate and about the negotiations is the role civil society played in winning that mandate and the extraordinary diversity of the civil society movements with Break Free from Plastics, with with, coalitions of stakeholders from, from major UN groups coming together to demand this sort of solution. That sort of cross-sectoral approach, the diversity of the movements, the fact that these movements are coming from the global south and from frontline and fence-line communities in places where plastics are made, I think is a testament to the extraordinary potential of this, of this treaty. The last thing I want to say about its importance is that you cannot address the plastic crisis without addressing plastic production. And that means that the very fact that we are negotiating this treaty to look at the full life cycle of plastics means that anybody who is considering building yet another plastic or petrochemical plant, anybody who is considering like developing an expensive new product line and trying to decide how to package it has to be looking at these treaty negotiations and saying, Am I willing to take the massive investment risk that I'm going to sink billions into this new infrastructure and five years from now, we're heading towards a phase out or three years from now? And that, I think, is a really extraordinarily powerful signal to the global markets um, and why, again, these negotiations are simply such an extraordinary opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think it's also great to to be provided a bit of hope in terms of, you know, the coalition and all the things that are um, happening in terms of uh, civil society, all the movements that are working together towards towards this. But I think just maybe to, to, to understand a bit more concretely as to what potential does the treaty hold, I would say to create um, actual tangible, you know, real change, particularly in simply decreasing the amount of plastics that are that are created specifically if you talk about a single use plastic as well i think it's really important to look at this in two distinct ways there is what can we achieve within the treaty itself and what do we need to win you know at the state and national and local levels in other countries to make that make that treaty possible these things are deeply interwoven. And so the the success of the treaty, the ambition of the treaty is also ultimately going to help drive and be driven by what we accomplish at the national level in many countries. And so so what what can a treaty include? Well, it can address the full life cycle of plastics. That means that addressing production of new plastic feedstocks addressing subsidies or addressing permitting for th- for new facilities where plastics are being made it means that we could put in place rules to require those facilities not only to produce fewer plastics but to ensure that the plastics they are producing 
are safer, both for the public and for frontline and fence line communities. That means using fewer chemicals in the plastics and releasing fewer chemicals into the environment where the plastics are made. To ensure that we you know, are producing ever fewer new plastics on the way to producing no new plastics, um, put in place clear requirements for not just for reuse and reduction, but for ensuring products are designed for reuse. And that again means that it means they're designed to be durable. They're built into systems that that facilitate reuse. They they avoid they avoid the products altogether where they can. And those products that get produced are again safe for everyone to use. And this is this is an, an aspect of the treaty that I think really warrants calling out. There are 10,000 chemical substances involved in the production of plastics. We know that about about 25% of those, about 2,400 of those substances bear, you know, have been, bear one or more of the criteria for persistence, bioaccumulation, and toxicity that the EU has established. And so for 2,400 chemicals involved in plastics, there are indicia that they are persistent, bioaccumulative, and, and or toxic. But for the remaining 7,500, many of them, we simply don't know what those chemicals are, whether they are harmful, and in what combinations they might be harmful. And so one critical thing that this treaty could also do is require far greater transparency and disclosure. It's always a bit scary to hear <laughs> and to remind ourselves of all the things that we actually don't even have an idea about, you know, when it comes to, to plastic. So thank you so much for, for laying this down. Uh, where can people find your work? Is there anything that you want to mention, recommend for our listeners before we close? Yeah, absolutely. People can find our website at www.ciel.org. Or if you're in a bigger hurry, just go on Twitter and look for CL Tweets. Perfect. Thank you so much. We wanted to leave this short podcast series with an element of hope. The global plastics treaty negotiations could be pivotal in helping Europe and countries around the world reduce plastic production and consumption. And different policy opportunities in Europe are moving forward. But as the continent enters summer, it will be important to remember that the energy crisis will continue and questions over energy security will reappear. The Winter is Coming report on which this podcast is based shed light on the staggering consumption of oil, gas and electricity of the petrochemical and plastics industry. So keep in mind, there is an opportunity for Europe to reduce virgin plastic production and by doing so, address plastic pollution, contribute positively to mitigating the climate crisis and moreover, ease energy demands in Europe. But we need bold and ambitious measures. Will decision makers in the European Union and its member states step up? To learn more about plastics, petrochemicals and their connection to energy and climate, the Winter is Coming report on the Break Free from Plastic website is a must-read. To follow and support Break Free from Plastic, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. If you enjoyed the podcast series, make sure to share it with people around you as well. Thank you for listening.